I am here with Isa Blumi. Uh, he's a professor at uh, Stockholm University uh, and has written about, I mean, so many things, so many different situations. But I, I would, I would characterize you, Isa, as a scholar of the empire in some way. Was that? Do you think that's fair? I think that's very fair. That's exactly what I market myself as these days. <laughs> okay, good. Um, so, you know, I, I've been reading a lot of your stuff, um, you know, your books, but, um, also like articles about Albania and like the Albanian diaspora about Yemen. Um, and then this book, um, Ottoman refugees. And one of the things that I think one of the, one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you was like, you talk about the, the defining of a people, um, for example, people from Yemen or, you know, any of these, you know, as you call them, like Ottoman refugees, uh, anyone who's kind of targeted by the empire for some reason, they're defined as traditional. And so there's this kind of traditional modern dichotomy backward and then therefore implicitly forward thinking. And I just, why don't we start with that? Because when that was really striking to me um, in terms of just like something I had never thought about, like when you define uh, something as traditional and traditional is like inherently oppressive somehow. And so it's like, that means that whatever the empire is doing is progressive. So yeah, yes. I guess, tell, tell me how you came to think about that and think about it that way. Uh well, it, it it came at various ways. Growing up uh, in the United States, in certain neighborhoods, where you 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 hear this patronizing uh, uh, discourse coming from uh, a variety of quarters, whether it be politically right oriented or political left, um, it always came with kind of the the tone of uh, we're here to um, lift you up or help you get out of your situation, which to a large extent is. Um, like a battle against your nature. Um, mm -hmm. And, and that, that alerted me already that this is kind of an odd way of addressing, uh, try to educating people in the pejorative way, right? Educate them in a, in a very activist, interventionist way. You got a sense uh, growing up in certain neighborhoods of Los Angeles that you were being educated um, as if you were some kind of animal. And um, that's sensitized me already before I went to the new school and started to embrace some of the larger critiques of these discourses of empire over the course of the 19th and 20th century. And uh, what I found interesting is I kept pushing, however, this, this rather easily uh, um, referenced dichotomy between um, backward and, and progressive, uh, traditional and modern. Um, the, the kind of common um, binaries that we find in the discourse on, on empire and imperialism coming from the West uh, from the 19th so, century onwards. Uh, yes. The reason I, the reason I, um, you know, the, one of the fascinating things about it is especially like in the 60s, mm. a lot of the so-called progressive or um, third world regimes, whether it was like Nasser, the non-aligned ones, right? Like I think about India, Nehru, mm. um, Nasser in Egypt, they really embraced this, uh, even though they, I, I think, you know, I think they sincerely were against empire and they were wanted the independence of their countries and of the formerly colonized world, but by buying into the idea that their 
societies were backward and traditionalist and needed help become it with progress, I think they ended up doing a lot of damage and kind of reopening their countries up to imperialism. Uh, yes, absolutely. And that begins already with the 19th century, the insinuation of this idea of the enlightened man. Of course, the emphasis is on man, uh, and more, more, uh, more specifically, white men of certain uh, social status in their societies in London or Paris or Amsterdam. And uh, in, in, at some point in time, this would be instrumentalized as a, a kind of a tool for insinuation in societies that otherwise were very successful at resisting. Uh, recall that there were lots of little dirty tricks that uh, capitalist, financial capitalist imperialism needed to adapt, adopt in order to insinuate and ultimately undermine the resistance from, say, the Ottoman Empire, from uh, larger Mughal India, China, certainly, whether it be opium in the case of China, whether it be uh, these this uh, rather uh, crude, um, openly um, uh, this this distrust this this uh, loyal uh, commitments to agreements signed with various actors in the Mughal Empire, to um, recruiting elements within Ottoman society to who had ambitions to um, uh, reach above their pay scale, uh, joining forces with global capitalists uh, at this early stage of the 19th century. Uh, offered them an opportunity to become main actors in their own societies, economies, uh, with the so-called Tanzimat reforms of the 1830s, 1840s, and 50s. This is precisely the kind of intercessions, uh, interventions that uh, the empire needed from indigenous leaders or those who had ambitions to be rulers of their local societies. And they justified betraying the trust of their own societies by using this language of the Enlightenment, that there is a kind of progression in human development, that education, um, a distancing from tradition, from the past, from your grandfather, um, is a requisite journey before we can actually realize material success in this uh, now very dramatically transformed social order. yeah. Especially in the West, uh, where uh, people yeah. who used to live on the countryside or who uh, made their own clothing, for instance, were suddenly thrust onto cities and they lost ability, they lost the autonomy to grow their own food. And yeah, they- that was another that was another thing I remember uh, that's really striking about the way that you wrote about this and specifically like, uh, you know, the idea that the villager... And the village, the the pers- the village system, you know, again, like the village system is like a word you hear about India all the time. Mm. So for me, it was striking, like, because you talk about it in terms of depopulating the villages. Mm-hmm. So you know, we talk about like you know, where every development one hundred and one class is about like you know, rural to urban migration as like a big revolution. But if when if you if you frame it as depopulating villages because villages are where people are able to resist um empire from uh it's it's a totally different frame you you understand the whole thing that's happened over the past you know 150 years in a totally different way and this is the tragedy of the 20th century and resistance to finance capitalism is that the alternative um what's not something that could have been that was drawn from the so-called global south 
uh, indeed, the predecessor to the successful in industrialization of England was Muhammad Ali's Egypt, which in, by 20 years at least had invested in a very different kind of, let's say, capitalist uh, development of, of Egyptian society. It too was an expansionist state that moved all the way to Uganda, um, but it was not predicated on finance capitalism. And, and I think there's something to really explore theoretically um, also um, and how instrumentally states are different when they adopt and are, uh, are pushing certain kinds of, um, uh, uh, say, uh, returns on capital investment, um, the kinds of states that emerge around such a system that it's um, predicated on finance capitalism versus industrial capitalism or state capitalism, as was what you found in Egypt prior to 1840s. And so the alternative for the so-called global south in the, after World War I basically was Marxism. And if you look at Marx, I mean, he what does he think about the villager in, in, in Asia, right? It's the Asiatic mode of production. Totally contemptuous. It's yeah. contemptuous. It, it requires colonization and imperialism in order for the reach to kind of... Jesus. I'm sorry. That That's was that was my mother calling. <laughs> She's telling me to uh, calm, calm down about my critiques of Marx, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it could be. <laughs> no, but, but, but this was the, the, we were somewhat uh, stuck with uh, a, an alternative that in many ways completely embraced the enlightened uh, mindset, if you will, that humanity needed to go through a progression of transformations that was devastating for the vast majority of humanity that lived in the countryside that were self-sufficient. There's no reason why people should be integrated into a cash economy where people are compensated for their incredibly difficult labor with pieces of paper, right? These are promissory notes that if you can use this yeah, paper to and, feed and they yourself. Didn't, yeah, and, and it's like, I remember, I remember arguing with a progress-oriented economics, you know, professor once and they, and they were talking about, you know, like, you know, people people embraced this because of progress, and I, I was kind of like, no, they embraced it because they the col colonialists showed up and charged them taxes and would only accept those taxes in the cash, and then did violence to them if they didn't pay. So yeah. it was it was never a oh cool they're offering us this cool, you know, stuff or this new interesting lifestyle. It was always violent violently imposed and very indicative of uh, and revealing is uh, the strategies are very different depending on the context this is important for us to understand empire that it's not this you know uh, very um, lumpy uh, uh, clumsy kind of apparatus it is actually very adaptive and therefore it's reflected in the kinds of states that emerge over the 19th and 20th century now it's not just yeah. a single kind of model of uh, implementing uh, uh, power and acquiring hegemonic control over people's food supply or people's um, uh, cultural uh, development. But I think Mike Davis's book is such an important uh, addition to this discussion because what it does is... It, it, late Victorian Holocaust. Late Victorian yeah. Holocaust, right? Yeah. It, it, it exemplifies yeah. how um, even lowly governing officials see a window of opportunity, acquire and secure what used to be for millennia uh, a local indigenous population's security uh, valve, if you will, for precisely these kinds of environmental catastrophes, right? The periodic shifts in monsoon rains leading to shortage of food supply. Peoples of, the, of southern central India kept it in storage, what yeah. the British uh, administrators do is steal these resources, capitalize on it, profit from it 
and export it overseas where they can make more money from it, but at the same time also profit from the social transformations that this induces. It forces millions of people to leave the countryside. Millions of people will starve to death. And the other millions of people who are very weak are denied basic amounts of calories. They end up having to labor in the most egregious forms of exploitation that one could find. And this is the quintessential story of capitalism, capitalist insinuation in places like India, which differs somewhat in places like China. It certainly takes on different um, uh, qualities and um, uh, intensities in other parts of the Ottoman Empire or the post-Ottoman Empire. Places like Congo, which you wrote about, um, it, it takes different forms. Obviously, it's much more harder to collagulate people and, and force them into concentrated areas as elsewhere. But nevertheless, the, the adaptiveness of empire, I think, is such an important component for us to understand. But there's still yeah, there's underlining- a couple of problems. Yeah. There's Sorry. a couple of like propaganda elements against traditionalism that also like a lot of it is also like a psychological game, right? Of making natives uh, feel a lot of self-loathing and like it, that also um, it denies you a, a basis, like a psychological basis to stand up for your rights. If, you know, the British in India, they're always talking about like, well, I mean, I imagine in the Arab world too, it's like women, right? It's like women's rights and sati, uh, you know, they came to save women from these traditional societies and caste, right? And they, like in India, they they made caste into what it is today. And what it was before the empire showed up is, is diff was different. You know, it was much more fluid. It was much more like a definition, a, a you know, a clan, a, a family, a, you know, a hereditary professional category. It wasn't like, um, you know, a rigid, you know, just like defines your life and your class and your ability, your relationship to property and the means of survival the way that it became under the British. But it's like the British present themselves as progress, you know, helping society progress beyond the caste system when. That wasn't the case at all. Yeah. Like they deepened it, they intensified it. Well, primarily to uh, their initially their audiences back home, right? Which were yes. increasingly yes. skeptical about the costs that uh, uh, um, come with um, promoting and projecting the power of a of a elite few in their own societies. Mm-hmm. And of course, the sacrifice would go to the working classes who ended up either colonizing or indeed dying in the uh, anti-colonial wars that such an empire yeah. uh, always inside it. But for people uh, around, for instance, the, the free officers movement in Egypt, to which you were referring to earlier, um, and those um, who, uh, ironically enough, were sent out by the so-called traditional ruler of North Yemen in the 1930s to go and um, study how the world is transforming, um, they came back certainly with this impression that um, that modernity and development requires a certain set of institutions. A government must take the form in certain forms. You organize society in certain ways. Uh, And the big struggle for them was, of course, dealing with uh, resistance to this. Now, whether these were entrenched um, uh, economic elites, the British did a very good job of upsetting um, any kind of, uh, let's say, structural resistance uh, to capitalism in um, during their period of 1880s to 1930s of direct occupation of Egypt. 
but the subsequent classes, uh, and um, Nasser comes from a lower middle class, urbanites, uh, kind of uh, young and aspiring man, joins the military, um, gets injured in the 48 war, and, and, and is sees the military as is often uh, uh, promoted uh, in this relationship that British imperialism has with their the, the reality is on the ground after World War II. They will have to find alternatives to direct uh, occupation or control of their uh, enterprise. And uh, that was to find partners uh, in, in societies themselves. And that was certainly to encourage that kind of mindset that you yeah, are... Yeah, and a, bi- a big part of the partners is having people who are educated in those, uh, to into that kind of self-loathing, right? Like... If not, if not self-loading, I, mean, I think some of these guys were actual um, prime, um, prime time ego uh, egomaniacs. Yeah. Uh, uh, but right. more importantly, they were able to um, uh, point to larger society around them that they had a mission to, and it was going to be, of course, a, a mission that was I- embedded in this uh, very heroic struggle against injustices. Uh, they did believe there's there's there are ample ways of doing this. Um, uh, you can you can identify talented young, uh, young obviously young men until very recently now young women are also included in this enterprise of creating new, uh, waves of generations of people who see who have this mission, um, not necessarily the white man's burden, but certainly an, an enlightened man's burden uh, on saving their own people from perhaps the evils of, of capitalist exploitation. Um, but the end results, of course, uh, whether they are, uh, are aware of it or not, it, it services the continuation of this uh, integration of parts of the world that are deemed essential for this constant uh, search for returns on capital investments. Uh, capitalism it just constantly needs profits, right? And the uh, the extraction of cheap uh, raw materials, the uh, reimportation of finished products, the kind of classic story of what uh, modern uh, capitalist, capitalist imperialism looks like um, has effectively been perpetuated even by so-called reformers who have a progressive uh, bit of energy in them and indeed have embraced perhaps Lenin's critique of capitalism and and imperialism. Um, They end up being stuck in this Marxist appreciation of uh, what actually constitutes a modern, forward, enlightened uh, society uh, necessarily needs to abandon these entrenched, what is often treated as entrenched uh, vested interest in restraining change in these societies. And here, on that's the tragic story about many parts of the world, is that this will be exploited. Those people who are, will be even more eager to transform, even if necessary, violently transform their societies, are, are going to be armed uh, at certain points of time. They're going to certainly find a lot of uh, sympathetic um, uh, partnerships, if not in the kind of blatantly uh, proactive imperialist advocates in the West, those who see themselves as opposing uh, imperialism, right? So then you have this case of those who see themselves as going around the third world and helping uh, uh, sympathetically, in sympathetic terms, helping people um, bring themselves up to a certain level of of, uh, of, of material um, satisfaction and comfort. 
And, and this is the tragic case about places like Yemen or the Balkans during, or, or Congo, for that matter, in these uh, conflict and then post-conflict situations, is that there's all kinds of pressures from many different places that continuously are putting people in this position of having to choose between what their grandfather's values taught them and yeah. what they're being constantly pressured to believe is the only way out of the, the horrible situation in which they're in at the moment. And, exactly, yeah. and this is exploited at all levels at, at, from different kind of ideological perspectives. And that's something that we need to um, study more at, is the kind of the, the, the interlinking um, epistemological origins of, <laughs> of assistance, of, of, of development, yeah. of, uh, of these kinds of ideas that have enormous impact in places like Yemen and the Balkans and there's like a breakdown in terms of the mechanisms, right? So it's like you were talking about, um, you know, the way that you could use uh, the way that you, they use debt, right? Like the IMF will, you're, you'll, they'll encourage a government to uh, to get a bunch of loans to do these investments. Um, the loans come due. The commodity they have to sell commodities to. Uh, to service the loans, the commodity prices inevitably go down because they fluctuate and then it becomes impossible to service the loan. And then they come, the private banks that were actually doing the loaning behind the IMF come and take the assets of the country. That's one mechanism, but there's, um, there's others, right? Like there's um, like the brain drain aspect of it, like, you know, depopulating this, the villages, but then there's another level of depopulating the country. <laughs> um, and that's, uh, you know, the whole creation of diasporas, whether through war or through like various forms of economic displacement. Um, that the, the, yes, also we don't talk about enough. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, 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 the upsetting fa uh, forces of uh, massive population movements that come with yeah. uh, depopulating the countryside, which is very much uh, an invested policy of from the United Nations uh, to specific yeah. countries uh, throughout the 20th century. League of Nations uh, actively also participated in this rational use of land. The peasants didn't know how to um, effectively and scientifically use this land. This was an argument used often about Yemen. Uh, and what's so interesting is about Yemenis who have been farmers for thousands of years and did perfectly well and were self-sufficient and were able to export certain cash crops to the larger world for millennia uh, were um, very suspicious. Uh, they were not impressed by the waves of advisors that were already coming in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, yeah, because what are they offering them? Uh, they're, they're, they became increasingly suspicious. Clearly, they were um, sniffing around for other things. Indeed, uh, Carl um, uh, Twitchell um, is the uh, name of the, the geologist who in the 1930s suspected that there was enormous resources to be had in southern Arabia that had yet been explored. And he was allowed by the imam of the time to um, go ahead, do your explorations. You say you're looking for water. That, well, that's, we're more than welcoming this. But then at some point realized that he's 
spying. He's creating all kinds of maps. Um, he, he's up to no good. And he throwed his geologists out. He ends up creating, helping creating uh, Aramco in Saudi Arabia. And is the main um, partner between the United States Rockefeller Group and uh, Ibn, uh, Ibn Saud, the ruler at the time of Saudi Arabia. So um, it's interesting how intuitively people can uh, sniff out something suspicious about men of science um, in the 1930s, 1940s. And by the time we are the 2000s, 2010s, uh, there's almost a, um, a, a blank, a blank uh, uh, surrender, if you will, to the discourse of of science and uh, I mean, if you just look at our, our situation today, right? I mean, how how people have, have completely folded to um, uh, out of fear, out of something that they have heard is, is something that's threatening them. I mean, I think it's it's a it's a wonderful example of how um, how we've changed as human beings. Uh, the same part of the world that uh, the great grandfathers would be very suspicious of these people coming in and telling them that, you know, there's um, there's problems with the way they're growing their food are now willing to spray on Monsanto um, uh, bare yeah. uh, um, uh, chemicals yeah. onto their plants and uh, replace seeds from their grandparents' storage to these new miraculous seeds. And uh, the result is what we have, the disasters throughout Africa and India today. Well, yeah, and in India, they're, they're drinking pesticides and killing themselves. Yeah, you know, yeah. and in- so something happens uh, with, with that that needs to be historicized, it needs to be explored. And unfortunately, we get trapped by looking at Cold War um, analogies. Yeah, yeah, they're wrong frames. Yeah, and uh, we need to be a little bit more intimate in, in studying this stuff. And what's you know, we're fortunate historians covering these areas because the Americans and the British are very good keepers of their explorations and their in- incentives and the the range of personalities who get hired by empire to do things that they often don't think and don't realize is servicing other interests. <laughs> Sometimes they get they catch on and they actually rise up in their own careers, academic careers as anthropologists or um, as geologists. Uh, they become administrators in these uh, uh, academic organizations. Some of them go on to State Department or even CIA uh, and the equivalent in the British side. Uh, but there are some people who are, are naively, again, they believe their principle. They're there to go and save people or to help people. They, they. Well, they... I mean, the you know the you, the science, like science, has been bothering me recently because <laughs> for two reasons. One is like in the 1920s when they were out there, you know, proselytizing science. Mm-hmm. They were science was was fundamentally racist. Like mm-hmm. the science of the human sciences were all based on. Uh, scientific racism, which mm-hmm. was that white people were, you know, and and like that, those things. Reading them with, if you have a scientific bent or a scientific background, now they they are ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But that it also, you know, is is economic science that repeatedly tells people to take on these debts, um, you know, raise their productivity, and then plunges their entire economy into. Uh, austerity and misery over and over again isn't that theory just as barbaric and ridiculous as scientific racism in terms of its purely scientific merits you know so there's like a lot of these ideologies that are 
masquerading but, in but, science. But even these today. are not these are not mistakes, right? These are strategically yeah, exactly. mobilized, right? These are people are not yeah. naive to the failures of these. Uh, in fact, uh, this is where you really have to start wondering about those do-gooders who actually are oblivious to this. Um, and again, you see this all over West Central Africa, the Balkans, still today. And, <laughs> there's a there's a joke, Kyle. I was leaving the Congo, mm-hmm. and and you kind of have to go through Rwanda because mm-hmm. Rwanda is the country through which point, control yeah. of Congo is exercised, right? Mm-hmm. Like at least in the east. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was at the airport, and there was you know another non-African person in line and you know we uh, you inevitably i was like so are you from msf or are you from an ngo you know it's there's only four or five possibilities and she said yeah you know i work for an ngo and i do gender-based violence and i just mm. thought i wanted to say well shouldn't you stop yeah, <laughs> you know? shouldn't you stop doing gender-based violence to be to these people mm-hmm. but yeah. just the way they talk about what they do is also funny like and, it, and of course, it's instrumental for careers. And there's wonderful yeah. uh, um, now anth- ethnographic work on these people by this Lisa, I think, Hajar. She's Finnish. She, she worked oh, on, yeah. Uh, she worked on Finnish uh, do-gooders who go down to Rwanda after the, the, the events of the early 90s and follows mm-hmm. them when they go back to Finland. You know, and they reshape their career. They now have experience in the field. Uh, now they can yeah. become administrators or teachers, or they can go off to another expedition. Uh, you have a lot of those kinds of types who have an expertise that's that's can be isu- easily transferred from experience in southern Yemen to uh, to Senegal. Yeah, oh, it's and, all and, the same. Yeah, yeah. one size fits all for sure. And as... you look at uh, people explaining these things over, you know, a Chardonnay or something, and you're just wondering, <laughs> <laughs> you know, are you are you aware of how you frame things? And I mean, do you desperately need a good couple of months, a couple of years of graduate school, you know, that critiques this discourse. And then you begin to see the value of actually being sensitive to how we talk, right, and how we frame things. Mm. Um, And that was certainly one of the tools that helped me uh, decipher some of the uh, secondary uh, scholarship about places like the Balkans. bothers me with the case of the Balkans is, again, people are constantly looking for either or, or or, uh, an accounting for events that implicates, okay, NATO and the Americans, they have an objective. And then, therefore, the ones that they are uh, in many ways compelled to uh, address with we can argue about the net level of force and if it was indeed um, um, uh, um, the exaggerated or not exaggerated, it's another thing. But uh, people that end up losing the nuances to the actual events on the ground. And this, inc- this is incredibly difficult then for people on the ground to actually um, account for their own uh, place in the world. Uh, it makes it yeah. impossible for you after conflicts to actually... Um, um, gain control over your own fate. You, it's it's a yeah. very interesting correlation between how these events are um, discussed, interpreted, the discourse around them, both on those who are fighting against and for interventions, yeah. let's say, in the Balkans or in Yemen, uh, as the case uh, since 2015. But what it does is basically it makes it impossible for people on the ground to speak outside those parameters. And therefore, yeah. you can never well, resolve these conflicts other than the, than resolving conflicts between warring sects or yeah. warring na- nation states and, and ethno national or these ethnic. Are- yeah. So with Rwanda, like with Rwanda again, like um, you know, Hutus 
are as an entire ethnic group in Western discourse just considered like basically guilty of genocide. Mm -hmm. Like, and think about yeah. the then the uh, the occup the post conflict occupation and the kind of regime that necessarily comes from it. It's ideal, of course, because then people are are on all sides, even those who are going to capitalize and become now new rulers of not only Rwanda, but of a progressive uh, new Africa, right? I mean, this fellow in Rwanda now is hailed it as, as the new African leaders, the yeah. superstar, right? And, and the consequences this has on the ground is, is very hard to resist. And this is, again, by design, whether the stumbling idiots in Washington or Brussels realize this, or did they stumble on it, is that's another question that needs to be historicized. Um, in the Balkans, it certainly was the case. They, they really did not know what they were getting into when they finally occupied uh, Kosovo, for instance. But they worked their way around it. They made it very difficult to have any alternatives to the narrative that they presented it as. And over the years, they plundered the place. Uh, they kept political um, uh, solutions that were produced locally to out, completely out of the um, equation, and then came to some kind of conclusion um, by 2007 that we can actually have a mediating kind of um, uh, vague agreements that will lead to something called independence. Now, what will happen in places like uh, Congo or Southern Arabia today, which is, is in full conflict, 20 million people face starvation. Uh, there's horrible, horrible uh, infrastructural damage that could never be repaired again unless there's um, in serious uh, cooperation within these populations that are have been treated now to be permanently separated by a number of factors, whether it be tribal, whether it be regional, or worst of all, sectarian. And I know for a fact on the ground, this doesn't play itself out at all. But when Stockholm yeah. can de dictate who comes to the negotiating table and you have yeah. to, and you get flown up, right? And you sit around the table and this, they did this in the Balkans constantly. They did this in Africa right. constantly. And they're going to start doing this in North America with these, uh, the way they're framing all these events yeah. in the cities yeah. of the United States as well. And um, unless we become more attuned to this and, br and bring some of the history of this, uh, this methodology, which is really not, as I keep saying, not a methodology that is coherent at any one moment. It's an adaptive one. And the people on the ground who are given responsibility to solve the, let's say, uh, Kosovo problem of 2001 will come up with very clumsy solutions, but they ultimately translating, creating new powers around them in the indigenous population. It creates yeah, I mean, new... The whole, the whole operation against Lumumba in the Congo was basically run by the CIA chief of station, Lawrence Devlin. And like, <laughs> you can read his cables back and forth. And he's, you know, he's, he's getting suitcases full of cash and giving them to specific, you know, to Mobutu and specific other leaders. And mm -hmm. He's got a very sophisticated analysis of who's who and how they're going to how. But yeah, he had a lot of discretion for how he wanted to to get it done. And on the and other hand, there are specific tools and methods that do come up, right? There is some consistency that enables us to figure out what they're up to if we yes. know what we're looking at. But again, know. it's not easy to predict how people react to it on the ground. And this is where the story of Yemen mm -hmm. is very interesting um, because it doesn't go smoothly. 
right? They're constantly faced and they're scratching their heads. And these people are not fitting the kind of anthropological uh, framework that we've been um, <laughs> reading about, right? We paid for all these anthropologists to go down there and explain to us. And they come up with these stories about these are tribal people. You know, you just corrupt the official, or the top leader, and uh, you're going to have a very easy kind of way about influencing events on the ground. No, it doesn't work that way. And this is, I find, fascinating that there's still a resilience in humanity, even at this late stage. Uh, And this is what they're racing to stop, to to erase these elements. This is why they force people off the countryside in the first place. This is why when you look at this book of the art of not being ruled, what is his name? Uh, Dennis Scott, um, not David Scott, but he teaches at Yale. He has a wonderful series of studies about resistance in Southeast Asia. And he frames it in wonderful ways. The Art of Not Being Ruled is one of the titles of one of the books. Um, and uh, this is a perfect example of if we can use our historical cases, looking at the very documents, which in the case of South Arabia, I'm, I'm just amazed. There's all this material out there in the archives and no one has used them. And just even uh, what you were talking about with, you know, you depopulate the cities and then they go and work in other parts of the peninsula, but then they create, they generate savings that then return to their control in the villages and that becomes the whole problem. It's, yeah, it is, it is very fascinating. And and they have to resort to another uh, method of sequestering that savings. The big issue Mm -hmm. for empire throughout the 20th century is to, uh, because there's it's a money flow, of, to be very simplistic, there's a flow of money issue, and it needs to go constantly towards the North Atlantic world. And when you have these things break down, I mean, more recently, it's they've gone after even Swiss bank accounts, for goodness sake. This is how desperate things are getting now, to go after um, private yeah. accounts that should be going to Delaware or to the Channel Islands, yeah. as opposed to these offshore banks. They're going well, I've been investigating too, like the shakedowns of companies like, you know, Robert Pierucci's um, book about he worked for the power company in France hmm. and he got arrested, kind of taken hostage in the US for, I don't know, however many years. And then uh, the Fran- French government, it was a, a state company and they gave their nuclear business to GE. And that was basically when he was released. Yep. <laughs> so like, there's like hundreds of millions of dollars of uh, fines and whole parts of companies that the U.S. is basically stealing from its European allies, France, Germany. Um, and it's huge amounts of, yeah, it's huge amounts of cash. And of course, like what they're doing with the Chinese companies, right? ZTE. And and think about what what's going on in Europe right now, from Ukraine to Belarus to now Armenia and Azerbaijan to what happened in Syria. That has a lot yeah. to do with pipelines. And if you recall yeah. in the early 90s, uh, Schroeder and, uh, and the Russians agreed to provide Europe with cheap Russian gas. And one of the pipeline um, trajectories was through Ukraine. Well, once Ukraine had its quote-unquote revolution, right, that changed that. They've been putting pressure on all kinds of alternative routes, whether it be through Turkey, through Serbia, a lot of the events happening in the Balkans right now. This is a good point. This is another good point in your book that I that I was struck by that mm. uh, that I, that I think defines uh, what what's happening right now, which is like 
you know, we think even 20 years ago, I thought about, you know, global as an anti-globalization activist. I thought about like the IMF, the World Bank, the WTO, this kind of regime of uh, like really stable uh, plunder of these governments, right? Like they force governments to their knees and they force governments to do these austerity budgets and cut um, all these, uh, you know, cut all these benefits to the, to the society uh, for the sake of sending all the money to banks uh, in the West. But then um, you, you've, you've been talking also about, like when you look at Syria, Yemen, Libya, uh, Congo, Afghanistan, Iraq, it's like the bombing, the destruction of infrastructure, and then the kind of informal, like you have a mine you have illegal mining, you have illegal fishing, you have like offshore oil theft, gas smuggling, like these mechanisms of um, illegal during a war or like a low intensity kind of never ending war situation that are also mechanisms of capital and increasingly the way Western capital wants to operate, it seems. Absolutely. You don't need to deal with the, the, the messiness of domestic politics. Just destroy right. societies and then preserve uh, the, the key routes of oil wells that are from the center. You corrupt one guy $100,000 a year, he'll, with his allies, protect the pipeline. Um, if you can protect that infrastructure, you have basically Yemen's um, uh, oil and gas production uh, for, for free. Basically, right? You're not paying any kind of uh, long-term investments in, in creating established, stable government. You don't have you're, to. You're paying, you're paying the navy to blockade them, I guess. You're but paying the navy to blockade. Anyway. The plundering yeah. of the natural resources offshore is especially interesting. In Puntland, right yeah. now, there are two Italian companies and one Australian one that literally have offshore oil wells. And now, if you know what how you drill offshore, it's a pretty complicated. Um, um, Operation. Yeah, these, are, these are hundred. These are billions upon billions of dollars. And and there's no government and uh, there is no Somalia and it, uh, Yemen has fallen into the same kind of model and as Libya and, and Congo as well, where you can basically target these areas of of guaranteed uh, results um, and who knows who actually is able to secure these. Um, uh, access to these assets. Uh, who knows the politics behind all that? My my sources in Zurich are not going to tell me how uh, Company mm. A got the, the. I mean, it's an Austrian company for goodness' sake that's getting the money, getting the gas from Yemen right now. I mean, who would have thunk some Austrian company is going to be? Who's who's getting? Why? Why is that? That's an interesting yeah. story. But <laughs> by what right? Who? Where did? Who signed that right over yeah. to, to Austria? Yeah. But when I'm did not, the Austrian yeah. delegation yeah. show up yeah. and get a? But I'm not suicidal. I'm not going to be knocking on doors in Vienna because I'll end up <laughs> floating down the Danube, right? So this is not this is not my goal in life. But it, it is to yeah. highlight that these that they there are adaptations. Capitalism. Uh, they're now calling it the fourth generation of capitalism that they've created in Davos. That they are they have a new way. Oh, and, and so who well. knows what I mean. What depopulation, or you know, we don't need workers anymore. We don't need customers anymore. We, we're now moving towards a, a new kind of stream of consciousness. Who knows where these guys are going with this? Yeah. But on the ground, it's it's changed the nature of relations between states, uh, between states and their subjects. It's in interesting ways reconstituted polities in ways that uh, I don't even think empire could have imagined, but they certainly are benefited from it. 
the fact that you can have an all-out war between regional powers in eastern Libya, for instance, right now, or yeah. in, in Yemen, supposedly between members of a coalition, right? Um, there's, there's, there's a war within this so-called coalition to right. suppress the resistance from the Yemeni population. And this continues on in many parts of the world. Uh, that's, I think, is a, an important component to our movement forward. But I must uh, lament that I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think scholars these days have the resources to to do this anymore. The the the, the money is in think tanks, and the think tanks are run uh, by um, operatives who very much contain um, the way we talk about things, the way we frame. Yeah, there's things. no there's no scholarship going on in think tanks, right? They just oh, produce please. exactly yeah. what they produce exactly yeah. what is serviceable for yeah. the. And and they police and they police the content to the extent where, uh, in the case of the Middle East, it's either Qatari or Saudi funded or UAE funded, and they're all then representing the interest of that moment at least that their um, uh, money sources uh, interests. And how can we make sense of this? How can students who want to be exploratory they can't travel to the region anymore? The only no. place they're likely to study Arabic is in in Vermont, right? And, yeah. uh, you know, what kind of impact does that have when people end up uh, learning about the world, uh, a part of the world that you're interested in through the prism of, uh, of a specialty sc school set up by Georgetown University? It's, it's not going to be good. Uh, for historians, they should spend more time in the archives, but now we have all kinds of new restrictions. The last time I was uh, trying to study for uh, for this uh, uh, a book that follows up the one I just published, there are all kinds of things that have been removed by the Obama administration. It's uh, from the 1950s. Why would right. someone in the Obama administration be interested in removing as top secret documents created in the 1950s about northern Yemen? What is that all about? And, but that requires time. You need a couple of years in order to get access to these documents. And uh, you know, by that time, you may end up being fired because tenure is no longer guaranteed for a position anymore. Yeah. You know, in Toronto, if you say certain things about a certain country, you're immediately out. And, and uh, the, the list uh, it just grows in terms of where we shall not go, where we shall not traverse. Well, yeah, and then there's like the streets, you know, the anti-war yeah. movement. But it's always it like since Syria, I find it's been totally divided. It's like the yeah. anti-war people, yeah. you know, that were anti-war in Iraq were pro-war in Syria. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, the the disjunction is uh, it, it needs to be studied at some point. But again, um, there. there so many things. I mean, I, I, I've asked you, I asked a colleague, like, why were you anti-war in 2003 then? I don't get it. Uh -huh. <laughs> like, Saddam Hussein wasn't, you know, a, a nice person. <laughs> you know, uh -huh. like, you're saying Assad is so bad that you have to support the bombing of Syria. Well, uh -huh. you know, I just, I didn't get it. But somehow, people have managed to... You know, and diaspora networks have played a big role, right? Because it's like uh, if you're from there and you say you want your country bombed, then I guess. Uh, I also suspect that uh, um, the phenomena of uh, regional news agencies like Al Jazeera English yeah. had a huge yeah. impact. Uh, people have become very loyal and dependent on uh, these sources uh, to understand the world without being very, without questioning the, the, the um, intentions of some of the content. So right. I, that certainly contributed to how we saw this disconnect between Iraq, um, uh, behavior towards Iraq and what happened with Syria or even Yemen, for goodness sake, which no one talks about.
very frustrating. No one even talks about it. No one even mentions it. No, yeah, that that I mean the total total deafening silence uh, mm. on Yemen, except for like just cranks, right? It's well, thank you very much, Justin. I really appreciate that the kind of promotion. <laughs> I'll take I'll take that as a compliment, I guess. No, <laughs> I put myself in you know I put myself in that category too. Uh, but you know, like I, I discovered, like I heard about you because I was listening to Warner, and I don't yeah. think Warner considers themselves like you know socialist or leftist mm. or even anti-war per se. Mm. Like mm. they're just they're very independent, right? They're mm. very independent thinkers they just they just think whatever they think <laughs> well, i wish i wish we had a follow-up it was a couple of years ago and they promised a follow-up and never happened um and this is frustrating yeah. uh, to get an audience well, they've gotten they've gotten big yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um anyways that's also an interesting side of uh, fighting empire is that uh how do you do it these days uh, I, yeah. one almost wishes that you had still secret groups where you would you know print a newspaper in in the in the basement you know and distribute it on weekends uh, you know to people secretly well we might get, we might get back there because uh there was an event uh with Leila Khalid right uh, from you know the PFLP yeah. and she was doing an event at a US university over Zoom yeah, and Zoom shut down yeah Zoom shut it down. And then they tried YouTube and Facebook and they all shut them down. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's going to be printed. It's going to be printed pamphlets probably. But will our audience be able to read? That's the problem. Yeah. I'm, compla- that. I'm complaining to my students that you guys have now gone completely the opposite direction. You have this shorthand on your Twitter accounts, but I, I can see you don't, you can't formulate ideas, yeah. complicated ideas anymore in coherent language and this is a fear that um all is also an investment in in de-education uh, i'm almost certain yeah. about about that Absolutely. Uh, and again people in in, in lo- many parts of the world just um would not subscribe to this other than they have what they believe is no choice and they're not given much choice by the supp- supposed um, sympathetic ones here in the west who again have their own almost emotional projects uh, invested in, in saving. Well, yeah. Uh, one last, maybe just one last point that I'm, that I've been thinking that really struck me reading your work, which is like the whole, the humanitarianism, which again goes back to the 19th century, at least mm-hmm. of like, you know, we go and we, uh, we raise um, these, these really oppressive practices in Asia, it's Africa too. I think a big part of that is like to try to, um, you know, like there's, it's a, it's psychological warfare in some way. It's like about, you know, softening opinion for, for more imperialist wars. Uh, that is, is a justification. Yes. We're there to save people. Uh, the, the white man's burden um, translated in, in various forms, shapes and forms. Um, but that it's, it's so pervasive and it's actually in, instrumentalized and weaponized yeah. in, in ways that, um, again, people who are at the forefront often see themselves as doing good things. And yeah. if you try to corner them, they would never concede that they're actually facilitating um, the yeah. integration of uh, rural Yemen into the uh, global capitalist economy. Um, but uh, you have, if you read from from a little distance, you actually see it, it's very much articulated well in the documentation that then follows up the reports they send to the embassy, for instance, or to their manager who ultimately sends it to the State Department, or it somehow gets back to a UN agency and then it ends up 
on a number of people's desks and they look at um, how this program progresses with the objective of um, liberating these people, perhaps, and they use that language, or modernizing these people. But in the end, so have, they're ultimately being integrated into this ex heavily exploitative system of finance capitalism. Whenever I end a book, <laughs> whether like my Haiti book or my Congo book, or uh, I always kind of talk a little bit about the importance of sovereignty, but like um, it's not just sovereignty, right? Like some of what your work kind of shows me is like there's also some kind of some kind of you have to have a critique of of the 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 traditional modern dichotomy that they impose because like even if you if you, even if you achieve sovereignty in some way as long as you have that mentality that the majority of your country is backward and needs to be fixed somehow you're going to run into many of the same problems so like where do you where do you think I mean, obviously, we can't uh, we can't solve the problem. This is at, in the end just a podcast. <laughs> I've always wanted I wanted to say that uh, to you, Isa. <laughs> but uh, but um, I but where do you like? Where do you think a, a solid ground to stand on as a internationalist or an anti empire um, person, an anti war activist? Like, where? How would you kind of begin to formulate? A, a place to from which to resist you know uh, uh from our own um personal responsibility of of the way we interact with this exploitative economy uh, mm -hmm. i mean i guess that that's a very fundamental um, one um collectively that you that there's there's potential impact there we're shaping how um power is translated into the way we consume food and consume culture and, and interact with each other and communicate to each other. But that's, mm -hmm. I think, an impossibility at this stage. Uh, we are so entrapped by this um, system of delivering and uh, our uh, requirements uh, as human beings. Uh, showing solidarity is an important component, but being very vigilant about and careful about how we represent those people we are supposedly showing solidarity towards, mm -hmm. I think, helps yeah. us at least in the next generation write differently about um, this whole story that is, is, in the case of Yemen from the 60s to today, it, it requires we talk about it in different ways. And I'm afraid yeah. um, that's an uphill battle. Um, I can only teach so many students, and one or two of them end up going on to graduate school. Some of them are now teaching and are teaching at better universities than I am. I'm very happy about <laughs> that. I, but I have to wonder, you know, uh, to what extent does that, you know, create um, over time um, a body of, of, of thinking people who are consciously uh, aware of how they talk about the world and frame it and then change the way we talk about it. The investment in language from Derrida and Foucault and uh, Althusser was very, very important, I think. It was an important intervention that kind of got lost at some point in these, uh, how, when these academic debates by so-called schools afterwards. So yeah. I, I think our role is to communicate and constantly remind people that um, you know this. It's not just what M MSNBC or whatever your equivalent is up in Canada uh, is telling us to be upset about uh, and 
pushing it even further and making connections between what's happened over the last 30 years in Congo with what has happened in South Arabia, mm. what is what happened in the Balkans, and what is happening in the inner cities of North America, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. I think that's it, it. That's the best that I could possibly do is um, help inform people to think a little bit about uh, the world in a different way. Not to impose on them, uh, not to give them an F if they don't say the right thing in, a, in an exam, <laughs> but to encourage them to, th you know, think it out a little bit, because th that's exactly the opposite of what is expected of us over the last hundred years. Is is no longer to think about these things, and yeah. um, I mean that's that's how I preach, I guess, is by um, making things a little bit more complicated than maybe most people would like it, and that's a critique of me, right? That's the common critique. It's it's just too complicated, and um, oh, I well. I can never reduce it to something that is more presentable. But the world is complicated, and the people who are resisting deserve a little bit more um, quality attention that accounts for their very specific dynamics, but also tied into larger dynamics of the world that have implicated places like Yemen into this horrible, horrible enterprise of global financial capitalism. Well, if you want another dubious endorsement, Isa, I would say I've read much more complicated stuff than your stuff. Okay, well, okay, thank you. I think I'll take that as a compliment as well. <laughs> All right, thank you again, Isa Blooming.